This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. In mid-January, dozens gathered at the Shorter AME Church in Denver. They were concerned about gentrification and seeing their home prices spike as new developments moved in. Head of the church, Reverend Timothy Tyler, was fed up seeing his parishioners negatively impacted. Whenever you have an organized plan to destroy historical communities and to drive out ordinary people in the name of progress, that's a social justice issue. Hearing that, the last person you'd expect the church to honor with its award for social justice is a developer. But Shorter AME awarded Denver developer Kyle Zeppelin its Shoes of Justice Award. We're very proud of Kyle Zeppelin and the work that he has done. The misnomer is that people who talk against gentrification are against developing and creating new resources in our communities. And that's not it at all. Uh, As time moves on, you need to rebuild and you need to construct and you need to build up our communities. And that's acceptable. But it has to be done in a just way and in a way that cares for people. He's a model for how you can have, uh, how you can build up a city without tearing down historical communities. I met up with Zeppelin in his newest project in the heart of Denver's River North neighborhood called Zeppelin Station. He milled around construction crews as they worked to put the final touches on the food hall and office space, which is now open. Same old stuff. So is it all right if we take a lap around? Oh, yeah. Zeppelin says how he approaches development is different. We're in an industry that's that's gotten a little bit tainted uh, by a lot of bad practices, but we're, you know, first and foremost, we're part of the community, and uh, we're, we are in a unique position um, in some cases to transform the physical environment and do it in a way that's more responsible. Zeppelin's come out against expanding and lowering I-70 in North Denver because of its impact on the existing community. He's co-chair of a committee fighting against a Denver bid for the Olympics, and he bucked his own industry by supporting a Green Roofs ballot initiative. He often mentions his father, another well-known Denver developer, Mickey Zeppelin, as inspiration. Here's Mickey speaking at a 2015 TEDx Rhino Talk. I think that as a developer, it's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility I believe that you have to be a long-term player. I think there's lots of things going on where people build an apartment, they sell it, they leave, and the community deals with the parking problems. Kyle Zeppelin lives in one of his first development projects called Taxi. It's situated beside the South Platte River in Rhino. And you can see it from another one of his buildings, the Source Hotel, slated to open in May. Standing on a massive deck, which will one day be part of the hotel's restaurant, he says his company wasn't always focused on creating affordable housing, but over the last two years, he says it's become the city's greatest need. Thousands of people are being displaced. Whole blocks are turning white. Um, I went to Manual High School, and it was a working-class neighborhood with a lot of history and character. Uh, Now you go out there, and it's, you know, moms with their baby strollers and, you know, walking their golden retrievers which there isn't necessarily anything wrong with. You know, cities are hot. People want to live urban. The problem is there hasn't been complementary investment uh, in allowing existing residents to be able to remain in those neighborhoods. Zeppelin says his objective now is to have affordable housing be the primary focus of his company. And to that end, it's identified dozens of acres ripe for affordable housing projects in North Denver, especially near the National Western Complex. But he says he's stuck unless the city acts. We have... uh, 
at least 10 acres um, just that are already built into our projects. We've identified another 20-acre site. Um, there's 40 acres for RTD. This is just in North Denver. Denver currently holds 200-plus uh, acres that they've allocated for commercial development um, that they could easily pivot out of, focus on affordable housing. We've pleaded with them to do that. But he says there's no political will by city officials to do so. In order for his affordable projects to begin... Put a deed restriction on those and spin them off to affordable housing developers that could translate into thousands, if not tens of thousands of units uh, within the next five years. I reached out to Derek Woodbury with Denver's Office of Economic Development to see if it really was that simple. He says the city is very much aware of the housing crunch, but... Affordable housing, and especially the financing for getting affordable projects off the ground and running... It's a very complicated process. Since 2011, the city has helped uh, create or preserve over 5,000 units across the city. So that's uh, something that we're proud of, but there's still plenty of work to be done. The city didn't comment on Zeppelin's plea for deed restrictions. However, Woodbury says designating city-owned land for affordable housing may seem simple, but most is held jointly with multiple stakeholders who must approve the move, and numerous other factors must be weighed, like the land's proximity to transit. According to Denver's office of the National Western Center, no private development is slated for the complex right now. Future phases could include private affordable housing projects, but exploring those options won't likely begin until 2019 at the earliest. Zeppelin's outspoken attitude and persistence with the city has turned him into an unexpected ally of North Denver community organizer Candy Sitabaka. She says she's typically no fan of Denver developers. He's your non-traditional ally in these battles of gentrification. This is a class issue. There is an important intersection with race, but this is a class issue. And I think that Kyle and Mickey understand their privilege as white men um, who do have wealth, and they're leveraging it as allies, as accomplices, and that's what white people with privilege should be doing. For his part, Kyle Zeppelin says he's honored to receive the award from Shorter AME and to be accepted in the community. You know, that was vindication for a lot of the things that we're doing that, you know, make sense. Um, and it's always been a huge part of our our whole approach and focus. And, and you know, the focus has always been to try and uh, do things that are relevant for the community. Um, And, you know, there's weeks that go by where we spend probably more hours on community involvement than we do in development. Um, And they're really very much part of our day-to-day. It's very much integrated. And uh, the idea sounds a little fatalistic, but the projects work better uh, because there is a broader commitment and we're filling social needs and we're not just doing things in a vacuum that's Kyle Zeppelin speaking inside his latest development, Zeppelin Station. It opened this week. See photos and a link to the city's plan for affordable housing, as well as our reporting on affordable housing and gentrification at CPR.org. Imagine a school where kids decide how they're going to learn and how to show the teacher what they've learned. A dozen schools in Colorado Springs are breaking the traditional model and doing just that. They're called next-generation learning schools, and their students are learning skills that don't come from a textbook. As part of our ongoing look at the future of Colorado schools, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundin takes us to Trailblazer Elementary. Several years ago, the classrooms here had kids sitting in rows, and teacher Alicia Eschler was like all the other teachers. I would tell them exactly what we were going to do and how we were going to learn it and how they were going to show mastery. Today? 
Here's what third grader Paige Packingham likes best about her school. I like how they give us choices. Multiple choices. Here's how it works. This math class asks each student at the start of class to figure out four math problems written on the board. Three out of four. Students check in with the teacher. Choose your stations. Based on their answers, they rotate through different stations. Math activity cards, collaborative group work, or computer programs that let you advance at your own pace. It's all very fluid, and kids are in charge of what they're doing. I asked Nathaniel Wojcik about his school. I like how... The teachers aren't always telling us what to do, so we like sometimes figure out what we have to do on our own. Each kid carries around a folder with learning targets they've helped set. Teachers are in the background and are one of the stations for kids who need to check in for help. There's a rule. If you get stuck, you go to three kids before asking the teacher. Sometimes it can take students a while to get to the task before them. Lots to reread now. But remember... They helped set their own goals, so eventually they get the job done. Ready, set, go. This big shift from the teacher deciding everything to teaching kids to learn on their own had teacher Mackenzie Myers scared beyond all belief. It was overwhelming, especially for a self-described control freak like her. She was also coming from a district where half her evaluation depended on whether kids hit the mark on test scores. Now she tells kids what the standards require. And the kids, I think, keep that in the back of their mind. And they have it in their notebooks, and they know that these lessons are, our centers are all giving them a way to access that, and they just have to choose which way works for them. And so I've seen it work. This approach to learning acknowledges that students need to think for themselves, not regurgitate academic content. There is a disconnect, though. The state says civic, personal, professional, and entrepreneurial skills are equally as important as academic skills. But schools are graded on how students do on state tests. Denise Rubio-Gurnett is principal of Trailblazer Elementary. She says in a survey, no parents talked about wanting their kids to score high on tests. They said, you know what? I want my child making a difference for the world. I want my child to have a global awareness of why they should leave a smaller footprint. I want my child to be a leader of themselves and others and be respectful. So Trailblazer decided that state test scores were no longer going to define them. So far, whole school approaches to more personalized learning are showing modest academic gains. But here's the more important point. Tests can't reflect everything these kids are learning. Next Generation Learning Coordinator Scott Fuller says the school is experimenting with new assessments. If kids can actually talk about what I'm learning, if you can pull up hard evidence in a portfolio and see what that looks like, most parents will say, I can see exactly where my child is. My child can articulate where they are and where they're trying to get to. Fuller says parents know that grades and tests are part of the system students use to move on after high school. But that system is changing. Employers are not equating that with success anymore. And colleges are starting to shift what they equate with success and moving more towards prove it to me. Prove to me you know that. Portfolios, interviews. What have you done with this to apply it? At Trailblazer, that means letting kids struggle for a while, figuring out how to find an answer on their own. During the popular Genius Hour, first grader Fox Gein gets to investigate his own research question. Where do computers come from and how does power get to computers? He's writing a letter to a computer expert, but he doesn't yet know how to find that person. He goes to teacher Kaylee Vasquez. I don't know the answer to that, same as Cannon's question. Fox thinks about it for a while. I know how I can get a computer into it. Can I go online? You could go online. 
How are you going to start that search box? Okay. I'm going to type it in. Start there and let me know how it goes. Fox Gein walks away with a big smile on his face. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. We just heard what happens when teachers at Trailblazer Elementary shake things up in a classroom. As part of our series on education innovation, we had more than 40 teachers and educators write in to tell us what they're doing in their schools. Jenny Brendine is here now to share some of those responses. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Nathan. So from what you've heard, how do most teachers start to innovate? It's different for every teacher, but most of them notice that things aren't going well in their classroom. Jessica Ruby is an art teacher in Weld County, and she noticed a small but important thing with her students. So I noticed that when the kids were leaving my art classroom, they were taking the art project and throwing it in the trash. And I just felt like there was this big disengagement between what I was teaching and and my students. So her response was to turn the tables, let the students choose which projects to pursue. And she let them choose what medium they wanted to work on and how they wanted to design their learning. And as a result, she had students coming in with work that they made on the weekends. And one student was able to design a video project that Ruby would never have suggested. She's designing with them and allowing for tons of feedback from the kids. Are there any new tools that teachers have developed? Apparently, you've heard from a few educators turned entrepreneurs. Yeah, Kim McGrigg is one. She's the director of communication for Junior Achievement in Denver, and she's a first-time game designer. She got the idea from playing games with her friends. She was really bored with the games that she was playing, so she decided that she would create a new game just for her friends so they could play over some wine, which was neat. Um, and this, But this was really neat. Uh, the game ended up catching on in over 300 schools across the country, and the game has only been around since September. How did this happen, this leap from adults to kids? She did a Kickstarter campaign, and the game blew up, and she was trying it out with kids. She works in a school, so that was a natural testing ground. Originally, she was just playing around with different games, and then she stumbled upon the concept for her game. So how does it work? Well, this game is called Not a Problem, and it starts with players pulling cards to create a really weird problem. So you put two words together to create the imaginary problem, let's say, of exploding pacifiers. There are thousands of word combinations to create a problem. And then the other players have an opportunity to present their solution in drawing form. And then two of those actually get to pitch their product idea to win the funding. So those other players come up with a solution to the problem. And the goal is to secure an investment from a crazy investor, a lot like what you do on the television show Shark Tank. McGrigg says teachers are dying to get their students this kind of experience, and some are writing to her asking for the game. Right now, she says she's happy spreading the word, but eventually she wants to take her game to Shark Tank and come full circle. McGrigg says the process of inventing the game is just the kind of experience she's hoping to share with students as they invent solutions while playing the game. Is this unusual, a teacher becoming an entrepreneur from their classroom innovation? We're hearing more and more about this. Uh, Kim McGrigg says she's not quitting her day job, but it's not the uh, only she's not the only one that's starting to become entrepreneurial. I have two more examples of this entrepreneurial spirit. First, we have teacher Janessa Boulay. She created a software program called Boulay Bank that allows for kids to learn about finance and create a whole economy in the classroom. 
It allows kids to manage checking, savings, and credit accounts, teaches them how to play, pay bills, and there's even a school currency with unique QR codes so the kids can scan virtual money and it's automatically deposited to their bank accounts. Hmm. So it's, it's pretty advanced. It even addresses buying or renting homes, but students have to buy and rent their desks. Students get to choose between renting and buying their desks. And if they choose to buy their desk or purchase their desk, they um, see their desk value appreciate, which is a really cool lesson for kids to learn between the difference between renting and buying. And it gets students talking about being housing poor when you spend a large portion of your money on housing costs like a mortgage and maintenance fees. And these are real issues and topics that Denver families are facing right now. Boulay says her software has helped her students teach finance to their parents. And we should say a majority of her students live in some degree of poverty. So finance is a big issue in the home. She says a lot of students' first language isn't English. So they're learning new terms like compound interest and mortgage for the first time and helping their parents learn, too. So you have another example of entrepreneurship from a science and health educator at the Colorado Charter High School. Yes, and this is the idea of using business to get kids excited about their health. It starts when one of the teachers saw an ad for U-Biome. That's a company in San Francisco that tests microorganisms, especially in the gut. So uh, these are high school students. Students wrote to U-Biome and the company responded. It sent hundreds of free test kits. Sean St. Sever is the health and wellness coordinator at the school. He says this type of learning project reached a much wider array of kids. He saw one of his worst students academically become one of his most engaged. And she came up to me and she's like, Mr. Look what I learned. And she wrote on this board. She drew this amazing elaborate picture of her gut and explaining why she craves junk food and how that she needs to eat more fruits and vegetables to, to feed the good bacteria so that it'll get bigger, so that the bad bacteria will die out, so that she'll start craving fruits and vegetables and eating healthier. St. Sever said this sort of approach, uh, innovative approach, really helps not only his students, but his role as a health educator. And what he means is the project spans multiple subjects and connects with the real world. And because we're not math and literacy, we don't really fit in. And so we've been able to partner and really make health priority, but we're really putting a science spin on it. And so our students are really learning a lot about science, but then at the same time, they're, they're learning a lot about like their overall health and wellness. That's not the only thing his classroom is doing differently. St. Sever says some students at the school struggle with substance abuse. That's a, a really huge issue right now in schools. So he approached a group that brings in natural medicinal herbs to help students learn alternatives to drug use. They tasted the new herbs and they've learned how to meditate. He says the new group started slowly, but now students have completely taken over the organization of the group. And they say it's, it's one of their favorite parts of school. Jenny, thanks for sharing all these responses with us. It really sounds like you've you've actually struck a chord with these educators, and, and I'm assuming you're going to be doing more reporting on this in the future? Yes, I have more stories coming up soon about innovation in education, and we'll be covering this over the next few months. All right. Jenny Brundine covers education for CPR. She's been focusing on innovation in schools for the last few months. This segment was produced with help from Meredith Turk. You can go to CPR.org, Facebook, and Instagram to see more photos from some of these school innovations referenced here. And perhaps the coverage resonated with you or you want us to explore something else. Share your feedback on Facebook, Twitter, and to hear more from this reporting project, head to CPR.org. Up next, CU Boulder has acquired the Shark Hive. 
We'll find out what that is. It doesn't have to do with the fish. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Printmaker Bud Shark lives in Lyons, and his work appears in some of the country's best museums, the Met in New York and the Art Institute of Chicago, to name a few. For decades, Shark has collaborated with around 150 different artists to create prints, as he explains in a recent YouTube video. The process is art, and I am able to contribute to the artist's production by making suggestions, and so it's extremely creative. CU Boulder recently acquired the Shark Hive. It's a collection of his artwork spanning his career. CU Art Museum curator Hope Saska says they plan to eventually show it off to the public and let students connect with the work in their classes. Hope, welcome to Colorado Matters. Good morning. Let's start by understanding just what Bud Shark does at his Sharks Inc. studio in Lyons. Explain this creative process he goes through with the artists he works with. Bud and the artists work in a very close collaboration. The artists come to stay at the studio in Lyons. And I think they have a lot of wonderful conversations over dinners and um, kind of really preparing to think about creating something new um, that challenges both the artist and the printmaker. Um, So they really kind of talk through ideas and um, develop ideas together collaboratively. And this isn't printing artwork on a printer. I mean, it's a really intricate process. Uh, Here's Bud describing in a CU video why he's so enamored with his job. I really love seeing the ink on the paper after it's been printed. I like the whole process. There's a physical aspect to making lithographs that I enjoy, the actual printing, the rolling of the ink, the running it through the press. You know Bud personally, and and I think you've been to his studio from what I hear. Can you give me an insight into what inspires him to work with these famous artists? I think it's the the challenge of um, coming up with uh, an artistic problem. So um, Bud and the artists talk about what they want to achieve, and maybe they stretch a little bit further by creating prints of um, different types of complexity. So it's not just an image that replicates something an artist could do with a painting or a sculpture, but something that could only be achieved in in printmaking. And um, some sort of a challenge is often involved. They're immensely time-consuming and um, labor-intensive, as, as you've heard Bud say, um, but I think a real joy for both the artist and, um, and Bud as printmaker. And, and these are, are, are new works, correct? They're not simply reproductions, right? Correct, yes. They are limited editions, which means that they are produced in a number of about maybe 30 or 40 um, prints, um, and, and then at that point no more will be um, created, and they're all handmade to some extent. Um, They may have additions of collage or they might be formed into three dimensions. So there is a a very immediate relationship that the artist and the printmaker have with every single print that that they produce. And do these artists seek Bud out or, or is it vice versa? 
I think it's a little bit of both. I'm not entirely sure of how all of the artists have come to work with him, but he certainly has long-standing relationships with some artists like Red Grooms and Enrique Chagoya, um, just to name a couple, that will really appreciate the vision of uh, Printmaker and, and what they can achieve together, who will come back year after year. Um, so he has you know, new artists coming in, but certainly really develops long-term relationships. And it's almost like a residency he has at his studio. They, they live on site as these prints are created. They, they collaborate. They talk with each other. Can you explain a bit more? Yes. Um, they have a, a really kind of engaged um, intellectual experience and I think a creative experience when they're in Lyons. Um, it's a slightly remote location. So um, and they, you know, have a beautiful view of the um, Mount Audubon and, and really get to be um, in Lyons and enjoying the the natural environment. But I think it also removes distractions. So they're able to really have these intensely focused conversations where an artist may come with uh, some preconceived ideas that they work through together, or they may come uh, with some very general concepts that they want to think about. And um, there, there are a lot of long dinners and one-on-one -on -one time over the course of um, a week or two that an artist is living um, in close proximity to the studio. One of the prints currently on display at your museum really highlights this unique nature of some of these prints that Shark uh, creates. It's called Ruckus Taxi by New York artist Red Grooms. Can you describe it for us? This is a perfect print to talk about on the radio because of its name. I think um, the ruckus taxi with the name itself just conveys sort of the lively vivacity of Red Grooms' uh, his print productions. Um, ruckus, this print in particular, was the first three-dimensional lithograph that Red Grooms created with Bud Shark, and they've since gone on to create more. And what it shows is a... Um, it's a print that has been cut and pasted and, and constructed into um, three dimensions uh, of a New York City yellow checkered cab uh, careening through the streets. And, and there's a very surly looking taxi driver sitting in the front seat, a uh, female passenger in the back who's attempting to apply makeup as the taxi is uh, really upended on two wheels. And you can almost imagine it going around a sharp corner in um, a really busy city. And I think this type of uh, humor and liveliness is something that Bud is really, um, really known for, and Red Grooms as well. I think um, there's sort of a, a great pairing of an artist and a printmaker. And so was the collaboration process to make this a 3D print uh, between the two of them? Yes, yes. They knew that um, they wanted to construct a 3D print, and they um, went you know, really discussed, um, you know, I think at first it sounds kind of easy. We're all used to making um, little paper models, but the process of really figuring out how to create an object um, that is perfectly dimensional um, requires a lot of steps. So there's a lot of trial and error, a lot of discussion between artist and printmaker about um, what exactly it needs to look like, uh, many trial proofs and... Um, sketches and the finished production really is the result of a long process of pro problem solving and really uh, kind of troubleshooting. And, and uh, with, with this shark hive uh, coming to, to see you, uh, what will the benefit be for students and, and the public? Will everyone get to see this work and, and go through all of this stuff that you've accumulated? 
uh, we're really excited about making it available to our um, student community and to the larger community of Boulder, and then uh, even beyond that to other scholars thinking about contemporary printmaking in America. Uh, we're at, we're welcoming the collection into the museum over the next few months and um, are planning a major exhibition in 2021. Um, and we'll be processing the prints and, and kind of um, ourselves figuring out how they fit into our, our collection in the best way. Um, but at, we'll be making them available to the university at the same time. And not only will our students and community be able to see them um, in, a, in exhibition, but they can also make appointments at our print room um, to explore the prints firsthand and all of the related material, because we're not just getting the completed print, but we're getting um, all of the sketches and proofs and uh, materials related to production. So we'll be able to show how Bud Shark and somebody like Red Grooms created a lithograph from the very first stages of conception all the way through to the final production. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. CU Boulder Art Museum's Hope Saska is the curator for The Sharkive, a collection of work produced by Lions printmaker Bud Shark. Some of those prints are on display at the university right now. Hoo-ya, Colorado! That's the crew of the Navy's newest submarine, the USS Colorado, with a shout-out to the state for which the sub is named. The boat is scheduled to be commissioned tomorrow, after years of work by a committee of Colorado volunteers. Many of them are already in New London, Connecticut, for the ceremony. We spoke to the head of the committee, John Mackin of Lafayette, in 2016, to learn a little bit more about the USS Colorado, the fourth naval vessel to share a name with our landlocked state. He says he's not quite sure who chose the new submarine's name. Many states lobby for a ship to be named after them, but as far as I can tell, it just kind of fell into Colorado's lap. We asked Mackin to describe the new sub for us. It's nuclear-powered attack submarine. It's the latest class. We think it's the most powerful uh, attack submarine out there in the world. The ship is about 370 feet long, about 7,700 tons. And it's equipped with Tomahawk cruise missiles. As we mentioned earlier, three other U.S. ships have carried the Colorado name. The first was a steam frigate that saw service in the Civil War. Built before statehood, it was named after the Colorado River. Then there was a World War I-era armored cruiser named after the state. And then there was the battleship Colorado, which saw distinguished service in World War II. Here's Mackin again. It earned seven battle stars. It was moored next to USS Missouri in uh, Tokyo Harbor during the signing of the surrender. One veteran of that World War II ship talked about his service at an event in 2016. Ken Jones described the first time he saw the ship. I looked up at it and I think, it's really going to happen. I'm going to get on that big old ship and we're going to go off to war together and we're going to fire those big old guns and we're going to deal death and destruction to the enemy. And surely we would return home as conquering heroes. But then the ship faced the Battle of Saipan. Jones remembered the carnage and the gruesome job he and his shipmates faced. We literally had to clean up the ship. And for a 17-year-old boy to be picking up parts of his shipmates and putting them in these basket-type baby structures, you know, that leaves an impression. Jones, now 93, is scheduled to participate in tomorrow's commissioning ceremony, passing something called the Long Glass. It's a symbol of an officer's authority, and he'll hand it to a member of the current submarine crew. 
The the newest USS Colorado was officially named in December 2016. In the name of the United States, I christen thee Colorado. May God bless her and all that sail in her. And that champagne for the occasion was chilled by Colorado River water flown in special for the occasion. Since then, the boat's been through tests and shakedown cruises, and now it's ready to go to work. And we'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Well, human sexuality is the focus of Laura Pritchett's latest book, she says this is not a romance novel or simply a book full of sex scenes. It's called The Blue Hour and has just been named a Colorado Book Award finalist for 2018. It's set in an isolated fictional Colorado mountain town. I spoke to Pritchett, who lives northwest of Fort Collins, last year. Laura, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on again. The idea for this novel started with a series of short stories, a short story of yours, uh, published in Sun Magazine about a decade ago. Uh, Briefly, what was that one story about? That story was a a love story in which I was trying to uh, really get at the sentiment of love without getting sentimental. And in particular, it was about sexual fantasy and violence and some other taboo subjects. And I got more fan mail from that particular story than I've gotten for my novels. Um, you know, just people writing in to say thank you for being so honest about such a private subject. And I thought, you know, I want to turn this into a novel. Would you uh, mind reading a short excerpt for me? From that story, uh, Joe and Gretchen are the main characters, and they're newly fallen in love. They're both in their 30s, and uh, so far haven't yet any, met anyone yet on the on the planet or in the town to uh, fall in love with, but they, they fall and they fall hard. And so Gretchen, is, I'll read this little paragraph. Joe and I have the exact same hair color. So dark brown, it's almost black, only his is curly, and mine hangs straight to my waist. Our hair is graying, Joe's near his temples, and mine spread all throughout, and his is softer than mine, because the gray in mine has turned it less supple. I love it when he takes my hair up suddenly and starts to braid it, which is something he knows how to do from braiding harnesses, and I love pushing my hands up through his hair and feeling the spot, soft place where scalp ends and hair begins. What was it about Under the Apple Tree that seemed to resonate with so many of your readers? You said you had more fan mail from anyone uh, from for that story. Well, you know, I don't know how much, <laughs> how much I can say on the air, but I think it really delves into um, the role that violent fantasies have in loving relationships and where those fantasies come from. And I had done actually quite a bit of academic research to... Um, find out more about that, but I put it into fiction and and two people kind of grappling with the most tender of love, but having um, um, fantasies that that defied that tenderness. When you say human sexuality, what, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, yes, this novel is is very much about the human body and the ways people come together. But um, I don't just mean two people in bed. I mean, all the many, many ways that we um, connect, whether it's 
flirting or wishing we had someone in our life or but not getting that or um, a long sturdy relationship that's having its ups and downs but basically the physical part of our relationships with with others um, whether they're appropriate or not appropriate or messy or frowned upon or completely loving and the best that there is um, that's why I say it's not a romance novel. It's it's real messy life, you know. It's not Hollywood. It's not Hallmark. It's it's the true mess of it all. And, and are there other authors that that maybe you've looked to, to that that often explore human sexuality in their work? Yeah. So when I got the idea for this novel, which was ten years ago, at least maybe fifteen years ago, I started paying attention to contemporary American writers who were writing sex scenes and who didn't just take a chapter break. Chapter break. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, so many authors, even really good, uh, brave authors, I think, take two characters who we're learning about and we're really invested in, and they go off to the bedroom, and suddenly there's a chapter break, and the next day their lives start again. And that frustrates me a bit, because I think, you know, human sexuality is the point where we become, we reveal a lot to each other, we're very vulnerable. Um, and I don't know if taking a, a chapter break and not showing us that scene is serving the reader or the story very well. So I wanted to look at authors who were brave enough to show us that scene, you know, instead of the chapter break. Um, and there's so many I love. There's Susan Mimnot is one of my favorite. Her book Rapture is fantastic. But Jane Smiley, certainly, and Charles Baxter. Steve Almond is a very funny writer about sex. Um, Scott Spencer... Um, I just read a beautiful novel by a Wyoming contemporary writer named Brad Watson about a woman who can't have sex her whole life. And it's all but in certain ways, it's a very sexual novel. How do you think you were brave in this novel, The Blue Hour? Well, I feel like my goal as a writer um, and as I mature as a writer, I hope this is always true, that I continue to get more courageous in saying things that other people that's difficult to talk about that many other people won't say. Um, there's a famous quote, I think, by Eudora Welty that the way to become a better writer is simply to become more honest. And that's about the human condition is what she means. And um, there are things that uh, we don't talk about, mental illness, human sexuality, um, violence, that I think if you can really look at it, um, and then look again, you know, every time I do a draft of a chapter, I would say, now, is this as honest you can get about these two people and where they're at? Or are you are you playing it safe? And then I would try to dig deeper into what their real fears are, what their real hormones are doing to them, what they're um, what they want out of life, how best to live their life and and the things that prevent that and just really give it an unflinching look and not avert my gaze and try to write something softer or simpler. And you actually teach a class about writing these scenes. Isn't that correct? Well, <laughs> at some point in time after I had, you know, hundreds of examples of good, what I considered good sex scenes, which were ones that were moving and powerful and made you feel something, and then versus bad sex scenes, which made you blush or wince or think, oh, dear, this really shouldn't have been in the book. Or, or, or gratuitous, you know, that's another failure, I think. After I had all these examples, I thought, you know, I should teach this and just show people what I think, um, you know, works and what doesn't work. And so much of good. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I've spoken to authors who say it's very, very, very difficult to be that intimate with both their character themselves and then the the readers who are are looking at the pages. 
I think it is because so much of sex is kind of absurd or ridiculous or you get, uh, you know, cramps in your leg and things happen and it's messy. And to try to reveal that without getting too hallmarky or romance novel is really tricky because it's such a tender, intimate, odd thing we do. Um, but I think the trick to writing good sex scenes and what I hoped I did is just it has to be absolutely grounded and embodied in the senses and not over intellectualized, which is what I see a lot with, you know, you know, high level writers is I think that they actually get kind of a weird stylized vocabulary to describe sex when really most of us aren't going around thinking of it that in that way. Now, almost Every chapter of this book has a different narrator, and sometimes you switch from first person to second person and to even third person. This gives the reader a variety of viewpoints. And while all these characters in Blue Mountain, that's the fictional Colorado town where you've set this book, have different things going on in their lives, a really tragic event illustrates just how interconnected they all are. What were the challenges um, and advantages of telling the story through so many voices? Yeah, most of my other books are told from one or two narrators. And in a way, that's a simpler trajectory. You have one character and you're moving from point A to point B. Um, The challenge and I think the courageous thing I tried to do in the narration of this book was to really make the town the central character and a little bit like the book Winesburg, Ohio, for anyone who's familiar with that. But really have the town be the central character and everyone has to vo- give their voice in order for the reader to understand the town and how everyone works together. And especially after a tragedy, which happens right at the first chapter, um, everyone is sent into what I call the blue hour of their lives, which is a time of transition, just like the blue hour, you know, in the between night, night sky. and day and then the, the sunrise, sunrise type of thing. Yeah, it comes from the French phrase. I love this phrase, le bleu. It means the hour of blue. Uh, and it's an hour, I think, of sexuality, but also an hour of change. And so all of these characters are thrown into an hour of or a moment of change in their lives. And they really want to be better people or make sure they're not just drifting along in their lives. They really want to embrace their life and be the best partner they can be to their loved ones. And um, the tragedy forces them to do that. And because they're all in a small community, they're all going to run into each other and uh, bounce off of each other and help each other as they embark on this journey of, of deepening their lives. What do you hope your book says about the human condition. Um, Your book was recently included in a PBS NewsHour list of five books that will make you think about what it means to be human. I was really honored by that. It was such a delight. Uh, And if you don't mind, to answer your question, I'm just going to read one line from a character in my book. Um, It's a woman reflecting on, on your question, and she says, We all don't know what it is we want and how best to get there, whether we've given our lives enough thought, which requires time, or if we've made the right decisions, which requires courage. And um, I guess that's what the book, it's humanity. I mean, that's what I'm hoping to give is is everybody's reassessing their lives and making sure they're giving their lives enough time and courage to live the best possible life in the, you know, in the time we are granted. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Award-winning author Laura Pritchett lives northwest of Fort Collins. Her latest novel is The Blue Hour, and it's just been named a 2018 Colorado Book Award finalist. I spoke with her last year. Read an excerpt at CPR.org. 
You can also check out our stories on Facebook. And while you're there, take part in our listener call out. Ryan Warner is speaking with the governor soon, and he wants to know, should John Hickenlooper run for president? Why or why not? Let us know on Facebook now. We're at CPR News. We might use your comments in our next chat with the governor. Finally, today, the Colorado Symphony's principal timpanist, William Hill, has loved the work of Edgar Allan Poe since he was a boy. Hill uses all 18 stanzas of The Raven in his choral composition of the same name. He says the emotional complexity of the poem lends itself to its music. Mostly because uh, my brain is probably as twisted as Edgar Allan Poe's brain. Before its world premiere in 2015, Hill explained how he adapted Poe's language to make it work for a chorus. I cannot mess around with Poe's language. It's so fantastic and it's so musical in itself. But, of course, adapting it then uh, for the full chorus, I've tried with the various voice parts to just find ways so that the melodic content and the harmonic content reflect to me the emotional content of the music. The Raven, performed by the Colorado Symphony and Chorus. The recording is now available. And that's our show. Thanks to director Alexander McMahon and audio engineers Michael Hughes and Ted Coleman, producers Michelle P. Fulcher and Shauna Lewis. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Is it only stuck and so?